Hi, welcome to 1823 Podcast from Liverpool John Moores University. I'm Stuart Arrowsmith. In this episode, as the trial gets underway in the US Senate, we're talking about the impeachment of Donald Trump. How is it shaping his decision-making and what effect may it have on this year's election? Plus, we'll look back at previous White House controversies involving Bill Clinton and Richard Nixon as we discuss high crimes and misdemeanors. Article 1 is adopted. Article 2 is adopted. I'm not worried. I'm not worried because it's always good. When you don't do anything wrong, you get impeached. That may be a record that will last forever. Of course, President Trump is going to say that this is cheapening because this is an angle, this is positioning, this is what he needs to do in order to defend and justify his position. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. This is 1823 Podcast. The yeas are 230, the nays are 197, Present is one. Article one is adopted. On this vote, the yeas are 229. The nays are 198. Present is one. Article two is adopted. With those two bangs on the gavel, Speaker Nancy Pelosi declared that Donald Trump would become only the third president of the United States to be impeached by the House. The imminent trial in the Senate will decide if he becomes the first to be removed from office. My guest on this episode to talk us through the current situation, previous impeachments and what may happen next is an expert in US politics. Dr Matt Hill is the Programme Leader of International Relations and Politics at LJMU. is also an author of two books on American politics and has previously worked for the 39th president at the Carter Centre. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. Thank you very much for inviting me. Oh, no, you're more than welcome. And we're sitting down to record it in mid-January 2020. And even by recent standards, these are kind of tumultuous times in American and, and global politics. You must have plenty to get your teeth into at the moment. I do. I have plenty. I mean, I, I, I think um, one of the interesting things you talk about there about the international politics and then also about American domestic politics, and I think that's a really good link to look at um, how um, the two are connected, um, particularly when we've got the elections, the general election coming up in uh, November 2020. Um, so you have, you know, over the last few weeks, we had the situation with the um, uh, killing or assassination of um, one of the top uh, leaders in Iran um, by uh, President Trump. We have then um, the um, impact and the conversation about why did this happen now? Mm-hmm. Um, and is this an uh, opportunity for uh, Donald Trump to focus on this as opposed to impeachment, um, which a lot of commentators and um, and um, various other people are making signs of. Um, so yeah, so it's a, uh, it's a really um, extraordinary, dangerous and interesting time. Yeah, well, let's un- unpick those in turn. If we start with impeachment, um, it's obviously part of the Constitution, enables the removal of a president if they're found guilty of treason, bribery or other high crimes and misdemeanours. Two articles of impeachment have been brought against President Trump, is accused of an abuse of power, and that relates to those allegations that he basically pressured Ukraine to dig some dirt on on Joe Biden, potentially a presidential rival, is also accused of obstructing Congress. This is what he's had to say about it. They've cheapened the impeachment process. 
And now, now anybody that becomes, you know, this was a, this is a sacred position. Anybody that becomes president, I mean, they could have a phone call and they get impeached. So if the Republicans, if you had a Democrat as president, we have a Republican House, they don't like the, the guy for whatever reason or the woman, they impeach the person. It's cheapened it. It's exactly what our founding fathers didn't want, and they said it could happen, and it's happened. So President Trump and various Republicans have argued that there's no case for impeachment here and that actually by bringing it, the Democrats are lowering the bar for the future. How would you assess the, the case against President Trump? Oh, I mean, I think the first thing f from the top is that the impeachment process is a political process. Um, as a consequence, you are going to have political positions. And so, in a way, um, you know, see this as an extension of politics. Um, so the rules of politics still play out in this game. Because don't forget, this is within Congress, mm. which is one of the parts of the, the, the three branches of government. So I think that's the first thing that I would say. I think the uh, kind of following from that is that, um, you know, of course President Trump is going to say that this is cheapening because this is an angle, this is positioning, this is what he needs to do in order to defend and justify his position. Um, now, um, that doesn't take away from the fact that there is a, a legitimate concern which is raised through evidence and testimony that there is a case to be heard um, that um, he has abused his office and that there is questions with regards to um, how he's treated Congress. And that articles of, of, of impeachment have passed, so they're going to the Senate. That's the easy part in a way for the Democrats because they have the majority in the House of Representatives. Now, they're not necessarily going to get it through in that he's going to be impeached and you know found guilty and then he'll be removed from office. That's highly unlikely, particularly when you think that like a that there's a majority of uh, uh, Republicans senators and that you need a super majority, you need two thirds. Mm. So it's not going to happen. But as I said, it's a political process. So there are still victories for um, both um, the evidence uh, for truth and also for the Democratic Party um, in actually having this process play out so that they can actually benefit from this even though they don't get him impeached. Yeah, well, that's the interesting thing because I think a lot of people look at the, uh, the arithmetic in the Senate and say, well, it's not going to go through. What are the Democrats getting out of it? And we'll touch on the Clinton impeachment later on, but... What that showed was that you don't necessarily get the benefits of it by bringing an impeachment against a sitting president. Oh, yeah. I mean, for sure, because um, Bill Clinton won the midterms. It had an impact, but it didn't have the kind of impact that you would expect it to. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, what's interesting, though, is that, you know, with the election of um, President Trump, all things seem to be thrown out the window with regards to looking at the past. Um, um, elections or past situations so in some ways I'm reluctant to make a, a, a commitment you know mm -hmm. I I thought that Hillary Clinton would quite easily because of demographics and various other reasons would win um, the general election mm -hmm. um, and she didn't so <laughs> you know I'm I'm reluctant to say you know what kind of impact impeachment has yeah. um, on the electoral process um, but yeah you mentioned it is a political process, and I know that's set in the Constitution, but it, it doesn't seem quite right that 
you know, there's so much sway held by senators who are not going to be impartial in any way, but in terms of dictating the, the, the framework of the process as well. Is, is that right, do you think? Should that be done differently? Um, I mean, there's, there's always room for improvement for anything, isn't there? Um, like, you know, I have my ideas of what I think should happen, um, and I come from a particular position, political position, so therefore I'm going to advance those things. I think what's interesting is, is that the process is sufficiently vague to enable there to be a plurality of voices so that, like, yes, there will be situations where one particular party will kind of benefit and, and be advantageous in one ways, but then that will turn another time. So if you look at, for example, the appointment of Supreme Court justices, um, you know, whilst you might not have agreed with the process with regards to kind of like at the tail end of um, President Obama's presidency in his second term where he tried to get um, um, a justice in. The point is though is that you know in some ways it's kind of luck, the right time at the right moment and you put in the Supreme Court justice because someone retires or someone dies. Now that means that like if it's like you know a point where there's four conservative and four liberal and then you've got one to a point and then that is like you know you're, you're a Republican or you're a conservative president and you put them through you've got a majority in the House um, and in the Senate then you're in a great place. Like so, um, but that's just a happenstance. That's yeah. just one of those things. So I would be reluctant to say it has to be like this, mm-hmm. because there has to be. So you have to accept that that, that people have different views yeah. and different like uh, positions. In terms of Trump's core support, do you think this will have any impact on them whatsoever as we move towards the elections in November? I mean, this is a man who famously said he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and he wouldn't yeah. lose any voters over it, and well. We're about to not quite go to those lengths to find out, but you know they're they're really being pushed. Do you think he will lose any support among his core? Um, I mean, it, it's always interesting when I hear that because I think you're right. But then the question is, is like who is the person he shot? Mm. You know, mm. if you shoot someone in Baghdad Airport who's seen as a bad guy, then the, it's actually gonna. It's not just his home base. It's also gonna be his. Um, you know, it's gonna be a lot of other people. Um, if he shot um, the same person in um, Fifth Avenue, then it would be a similar thing. There'd be more people than just his like kind of base. Um, if it was like um, um, a white male who was well educated or something, you know, all these kind of uh, you know kind of like you know white Anglo-Saxon Protestant type thing, then mm-hmm. I don't think he would get away with it. Mm-hmm. But if it was someone else, then he probably would get away with it. So I think that's the first thing. But it's like I, I do also think that like um, like I mean it is a really um, it is a really interesting point. I think what it would happen is I think it would further reinforce. You know, it's like what everyone talks about the echo chamber. Yeah. It's just like you know you the way that he could narrate it and the way that he could explain it is that it would just further bolster that group. The question is though is whether or not that is significant enough a base. Um, to be able to uh, win the next election Mm. Um, and can and then the other part is can the Democrats sufficiently get the vote out um, within the other um, demographics to be able to kind of counter um, his uh, popularity within that base yeah to what extent do you think impeachment and the fact we've got an election this year are shaping President Trump's decision making at the moment I mean you've mentioned the example of um, the missile strike against yeah. um, against the Iranian minister Soleimani. He's been on the watch list for a long time. Previous presidents could have taken him out at some point and chose not to. Cynics would argue the timing of that yeah. uh, may be related to the impeachment process. Yeah, 
Um, absolutely. I mean, and the same question was raised um, with um, Clinton with regards to the bombing of the C- Sudanese pharmaceutical yes. places in, um, I think it was in either Khartoum or Ondaman, which mm. is like a twin city. Um, I don't think it's cynical to say that this plays a part of it. How much a part of it it plays is a separate question. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. US foreign policy is another of your areas of expertise. Just staying with that for a second. How far has President Trump moved away from the norm, in inverted commas, oh. in his time in office? <laughs> this is a really interesting question. I've just finished an edited collection um, with a colleague of mine, which is about continuity and discontinuity in US foreign policy, looking at Trump and then the previous administrations mm. going back um, through uh, to um, President Clinton. And it depends on how you're looking at it. If you're looking at it from a point of what is America's foreign policy long term, it's about America engaging with the world and maintaining its position of dominance in the international order. How that's then done is a separate question. Historically, we talk about American exceptionalism, the idea that America is this, you know, the kind of the pinnacle of of, um, political systems and it should be either, you know, America and its political system and its people should be either a shining beacon on it um, um, or a city on a hill which um, is to be emulated by the world Um, and they choose, these other states and other peoples choose that or it's about actively engaging with the world and being internationalist and saying democracy is an important thing which is the contemporary version of like kind of the American uh, Republic. And that, you know, we either do this by engaging with the world and supporting people or we do it aggressively. Um, so the question is there is, is, you know, is Trump doing that way by promoting democracy? No, he's not. But is he still wanting to maintain dominance in the international system? Yes. So in that sense, there is continuity. But as I just said, the way that he's doing it is different. Mm. And is there something fundamental about the way that he's doing it, which is so different to the way in which um, previous administrations have either paid lip service to, or is there um, a sufficient you know, gap mm. between them? And I think in that regard, there is a sufficient gap and that he is fundamentally questioning liberalism as a concept and an ideology in a way that previous administrations haven't. So, yeah, so I do think that there's a big thing. I mean, he may pay lip service every now and then to talk about American exceptionalism, American mm-hmm. values, but, you know, when, when, when the office of the President of the United States is constantly doing things and saying things and behaving in a particular way, which is counter to this civic nationalism yeah. um, and is more ethno-nationalist, then, yeah, I think that there, is a, there are fundamental differences. You're listening to 1823 Podcast. I mentioned in the introduction that you'd worked at the the Carter Centre for Jimmy Carter, the 39th president. And obviously with things that are going on at the moment, there is that fascinating contrast with how he dealt with conflict with Iran back in his time in office as well. He had to deal with the um, uh, the taking of uh, American embassy hostages yeah. in 79. He made the decision not to take military action until he tried to launch the rescue, which went badly wrong. He paid a heavy price uh, with the electorate for that. He was perceived as being weak, wasn't he, over that? Whereas Trump seems to be banking on on getting the benefits of being seen as a strong man. Yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, yeah, this is a really interesting. I think that to take the second part with regards to Trump and strongman, I was listening to something the other day 
Um, and um, I think that that strong man approach to foreign policy has always been something that the Democrats have seen as something they need to deliver on mm -hmm. because it was always seen as a weakness. And part of that is because of the narrative that's been created about Jimmy Carter. And, mm -hmm. um, but then at the same time, and, and the Republicans have been seen as the, the you know, the Republican presidents have been seen as the strong men. Um, I think since 2001, I think that's changed. You know, that's changed in a couple of ways. First of all, I think President Obama um, and also um, um, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton were very proactive in using the military as a means to project their goals with regards to foreign policy. Um, you know, that could be the expansion of drone attacks or it could be the engagement in Libya um, and the intervention there and so forth. I think that also there is a change in the electorate now because of what we've had coming up to 20 years of war in Afghanistan mm. and the initial goals to secure Afghanistan from no longer being a haven for terrorists has not fully worked. We, um, the US and NATO are still embroiled in that conflict. Um, it's not stable. Um, the billions that have been put in for um, development and democratisation has not worked. The same has happened in Iraq. We've got the growth of ISIS and so forth. Um, so I think that that strongman approach where it was a simple calculation that if you fire a bomb or if you drop a bomb or if you kind of engage militarily, that will help you in the polls. I don't think it's quite as easy now as it was then because I think people are tired hmm. you know people hmm. have been affected and impacted you know millions have been affected around the world particularly in those countries so hmm. you know I'll give you an example the Iran crisis um, there was a poll done in the last four or five days 56% of Americans disapproved of President Trump's handling of the Iran situation that's a big amount yeah. of the population so um, it's not worked mm -hmm. if the goal was to um, remove the conversation about impeachment um, to um, kind of like bolster his polls um, and to make him look like a strong man mm -hmm. it's not fully flatlined but it doesn't look like the best case scenario for President Trump in it um, has happened mm -hmm. And I guess that shift in attitudes is one of the reasons why somebody like President Carter is seen in an increasingly positive light as the years go by. So the things he was criticised for at the time are actually things that are very much uh, to his credit now, it seems. Yeah, to get to the thing about um, um, President Carter, I think one of the interesting things with President Carter is that he um, was part of a realisation in American political system and society that w how America was engaging in the world under President Nixon and President Ford um, to some extent um, needed to be changed. It wasn't just a rhetoric one but it was also a kind of like a values. He consolidated what was going on through Congress which was a recognition, a recognition that America needed to be, uh, needed to practice what it preached um, and it needed to um, uh, preach uh, human rights. Um, and engagement with the world and kind of recognise and, and to some extent, you know, President Carter wanted to transcend Cold War politics and wanted to say, look, everyone should 
behave well towards its citizens and we should encourage that and we should also criticize those states even if they're allies of ours um like iran um and the shah um if they do human rights abuses so this is well documented however what was also interesting is that he also recognized the fact that there are some places where the national interest is not to promote human rights and we will do that so he wasn't like a kind of a, a you know a tree-hugging liberal mm. um that was just completely ignorant of of real politics um but and i think that seems to be forgotten um so he you know um you know some people uh, i think it was an academic called Rosati said that he was the first post cold war president mm. which was this idea that he wanted to be and he wanted his administration he wanted america to be a a state that um engaged in the world um which wasn't just about hardcore national interests of um you know kind of like and and competing against um, the Soviets and communism. Mm. Um, and America wasn't able to do that until the collapse of the Soviet Union um, and the fall of the Berlin Wall and so mm. forth. Um, so that's why they see him as the first post-Cold War president. Yeah. It seems a bit of a paradox, but yeah. you know. Um, so yeah, so he, um, and so it signified a, a shift from what was going before under, under Nixon and Ford to um, what, President Carter did and that kind of carried on and even carried on to the Bush administration and the Obama administration even mm. though they kind of like you know um, um, Obama pulled back from um, actively and the kind of the, the opportunities to promote democracy for example and human rights kind of like he kind of narrowed where that would happen. 1823 podcast. Let's move back to uh, impeachment now and let's just take a look back at the two other previous presidential impeachments. But I want to say one thing to the American people. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. I never told anybody to lie, not a single time, never. These allegations are false, and I need to go back to work for the American people. That was President Bill Clinton in January 1998 denying a sexual relationship with a White House intern. However, later that year, he gave a different account when he testified before a grand jury. In a deposition in January, I was asked questions about my relationship with Monica Lewinsky. While my answers were legally accurate, I did not volunteer information. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Ms. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. In fact, it was wrong. It constituted a critical lapse in judgment and a personal failure on my part for which I am solely and completely responsible. So Clinton was impeached by the House in December 98 for perjury and obstruction of justice, but then cleared in the Senate in February 99. And that process all started as the investigation into uh, an historic uh, land deal by the Clintons years before, but then obviously spread further. And it was obviously, it was the salacious detail of the Monica Lewinsky affair that catapulted that to, well, it, it was the biggest story on the planet, wasn't it, that year? Yeah, it was, a, It you know, I remember it. Mm. You know, I remember the story, I remember the events, and I think um, I remember the way in which Monica Lewinsky was treated mm. um, and the, 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 the kind of the, the narrative in the media and the kind of like, the, the way in which he was positioned by the Democratic Party as a means to kind of like su 
you know, and even Hillary Clinton, mm. the way that Hillary Clinton talked about it. Um, you know, so I think that the, the, you know, the first thing I would say is let's remember the innocent here. Yeah. Um, or let's remember um, the person who's the victim. She was an intern mm-hmm. and President Clinton abused his office and abused his position and dominance um, and took advantage of someone. Um, now, that's not to say that Monica Lewinsky didn't have agency because mm-hmm. she made choices as well. But let's look at the power relationship between the two and let's think about those things first. So that's the first thing I'd say. I think that's really mm-hmm. important to mention. Um, do you want me to talk a bit about the kind of the, the way in which the impeachment process was set up there and the way in which the impeachment process is set up here. Because I think that there's some interesting points, of, you know, because um, uh, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader um, for Republicans, has said that he wants the same rules as the um, um, Clinton. Yeah, only some the of them it seems though, doesn't it? Exactly, yeah. only some of them. The ones that work for him and his party. Exactly, and you know, Mitch McConnell is um, is uh, uh, a lot of things um, and one of those things um, is that he's a very good political hack and has said before any of the evidence or information has gone through so to here by the Senate that they will kick it out mm-hmm. and not only that that they will liaise and strategize with the White House and has recently and continuously gone to the White House and talked to them about this yeah. that's an example of the politics of the impeachment process. Mm-hmm. Um, the question which you raised earlier is, is that right or fair? Mm-hmm. I personally don't think that's fair, but it's right in the sense of like, they can do it. Yeah. And the interesting thing with the Clinton impeachment is that he was acquitted in the Senate and there were senators who voted against party lines for that. Have we got so tribal in the two decades since then that we can't expect any Republicans or even indeed Democrats, if they so wished, to vote against party lines in the Trump trial? You kind of want to hope that it isn't tribal, but it is. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I would be surprised if if you're going to get uh, one or two swingers, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and the only time you're going to swing away from the party line is if your constituencies when you run for election if you're up for election in the senate which is once every six years um so if you're up for election in and you're a republican and your base is based you know you rely heavily on independence and on uh, uh conservative democrats and um, it looks likely through the polling that you've done that there is a disfavor to toe in the party line with regards to President Trump's impeachment, then you will probably vote against the party, the Republican Party line. But if you don't have any of that, then you're not. This is 1823 Podcast. The first impeachment was the 17th President Andrew Johnson. That was back in 1868, so you'll have to forgive me for not having any audio of him. Um, <laughs> but he was impeached for firing a cabinet member without approval from the Senate. He was uh, acquitted, but only just by one vote in the Senate. Uh, and there would, of course, have been one other impeachment vote against President Richard Nixon over the Watergate scandal. In 1974, the Judiciary Committee proposed three articles of impeachment against Nixon for obstruction of justice, abuse of power and contempt of Congress. But before the House could vote, this happened. I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Vice President Ford will be sworn in as president 
at that hour in this office. I, Gerald R. Ford, President of the United States, pursuant to the pardon power conferred upon me by Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution, have granted and by these presents do grant a full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon. So Richard Nixon remains the only US president in history to resign. Um, just to speculate for a moment, Matt, um, obviously he'd lost a lot of support in Congress back then over Watergate. Would you expect him to have been removed from office via impeachment back then? Oh, that is a really good question. And I don't know if I have the answer to that. Um, but, you know... I can speculate. Yeah, well, let's um, speculate. Let's speculate. It's it's hard to have uh, a rose-tinted glasses on the past and go, they would have done things differently because mm. politics is politics. Yeah. It's just different conditions. You know, human nature remains the same mm-hmm. from my perspective. It's just that you just operate in different ways as a consequence of the environment in which you're surrounded um, and the experiences of the individual i genuinely don't know how you do a counterfactual Mm -hmm. in this situation because there are so many different like layers to this um i think that by not playing out the politics a couple of things happened in my head um i think a couple of things happened that i thought was interesting first of all he did save the nation um from um from being exposed to the dirty laundry of um this process and he saved himself from it Mm. and I don't think that President Nixon um, Richard Nixon wanted to be exposed in the way that Donald Trump Mm. has been exposed and the way in which uh, Bill Clinton was exposed so it was a political decision by him um, and in a way it was a very astute one Um, so yeah I mean it's an interesting one I don't know the answer Mm. but I do think that like he, he he um, you know, he fell from grace. Um, he um, um, didn't have the same post-presidential career that um, people like Jimmy Carter has had. Mm-hmm. You know, and one of the mm-hmm. things about Jimmy Carter that they talk about is that he is the most successful post ex-president yeah. of everyone. Yeah. Um, and that's because he had a mission. Yeah. Um, you know, that he wanted to continue through the Carter Center. Mm-hmm. Um, whether or not President Nixon would have had the same post-career if he'd had been the articles of impeachment of guns as the Senate, but he hadn't been impeached in the way that Bill Clinton had a successful career post. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, Although neither of them have ever been able to lose he, association with the scandal. Yeah. And neither should they. No. And neither should they. Although I think Bill Clinton has sufficiently moved on in the sense of like, you know, has, uh, you know, has carved a career and a success a year from now, January 2021, it will be the presidential inauguration. We've already... <laughs> you already know that I'm not very good at called, predicting called this. the last one wrong, um, which, to be fair, who can predict anything at the moment? But just based on how things stand at the moment, I mean, would you expect it to be President Trump stood there again taking the oath next year? I, I think that um, we can't answer that question um, because we don't know who the candidate is for the Democrats yet. The other thing is, is like that you know you've got you've got Bloomberg putting in, mm. you know mm. Bloomberg is is a multi billionaire, 
Um, running as a third candidate, you know, the the thing at the moment is he's spending ten million on a sixty second ad in in the adverts um, of the Super Bowl. You know, like so, does he take the votes away um, in certain states from the Democrat candidate, which then enables President Trump to come uh, to maintain office? Until you know who the candidate is, and until you know who the third, if you know Bloomberg's impact as well, then I don't think we know how it will run in the general election. Yeah, fascinating times though, and I, th- yeah. I think you and your future students will be reflecting on this period for for a long time to come, won't you? Oh, most definitely, and we have been. Yeah. And it, you know, these are you know, it's um, you know, if you were to ask me, this is a great laboratory. Life is a great laboratory for. Um, uh, picking at things in the classroom and engaging with students about issues um, because it's real and it affects their day-to-day lives and it's really important. If you were to ask me though, would I rather not have this <laughs> in the world than have it, then yes I would and maybe we'd have a, a bit more of a stale conversation with the students but I think we'd all agree that that would be better than than the kind of like the excitement that this seems to invoke um, in the students in our like both in our undergraduate program in international relations and politics and our MA in international relations. Mm. Yeah, fascinating. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for your time no, on the podcast today. Uh, that's Dr. Matt Hill. This is 1823 Podcast. Yeah, thanks very much to Dr. Matt Hill for joining us on this episode of the podcast and talking us through the impeachment process and much else besides. I'm sure we'll all be watching events in Washington unfold with great interest over the coming weeks. Thanks to you for listening in. We'd love it if you left us a nice review and rating for the podcast and subscribe for future episodes. The next one will be along very soon. The editor of 1823 Podcast is Ben Jones. Our producer is Michael Humphreys.